You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 756 of the Locked on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on a Monday evening into Tuesday morning. And today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar, the best tasting bar in the business. And remember to use promo code Locked On to get $10 off your first box of Built Bars. On today's show, I am joined later on by Ricky O'Donnell, formerly of SB Nation. Talk about the NBA draft. That's a good conversation that I've already recorded with Ricky as I talk to you now. We had a lot of fun uh, talking about his Western Illinois journey, as well as uh, a lot of the top, uh, I would say, lottery-based guys in this class, ranging from a lot to talk about Alamelo Ball to Anthony Edwards, Killian Hayes, um, Isaac Okoro, et cetera, et cetera. And hope everybody enjoys that part of the podcast. Before we get to that, though, a little bit of news to hit on and sort of catch up on if you missed it. On uh, yesterday's show, I talked a lot about uh, the latest sort of detail stuff um, on the NBA discussions from Adam Silver's call on Friday with the players and uh, a lot of that stuff. So hopefully you caught up on that as well as some uh, yesterday's pod. I was also touched on the quote unquote rumor about Trey Young and the Knicks, etc. Um, but on, on today's show. I wanted to talk about, just at least for a second, about the Hawks reopening their facility, which happened on Monday, according to reports from both Sarah Spencer of the AJC and Chris Kirshner of The Athletic. Um, the facility had been closed over here in Brookhaven, uh, near where I live, for about two months, um, almost two months anyway, and now it is reopened. But as I've said numerous times, not reopened in full, no practices, etc. If you want to read details on this, they're definitely out there. And I've talked about them as well, about what the NBA's protocol is and uh, what, what is allowed and what isn't allowed. But um, they're taking temperatures at entry, according to uh, what Sarah and Chris wrote today. But they are not, as of this moment, testing anyone who is asymptomatic. They are sending people home if they have uh, high, too high temperatures, etc., uh, Travis Schlink gave an interesting quote to Sarah Spencer that I'm going to read for you now um, that I thought was interesting. Here it is, and I quote, I don't think I don't think this, this this should be perceived as a reflection of games potentially coming back. I think what we're, what we're trying to do is give our guys a place to get a workout in safety, end quote. Also, there is a lot of different detail in Chris Kirshner's piece at The Athletic, which is behind paywalls. So I don't want to give it all away, but one thing that I wanted to note here that Chris uh, reported on is that players have to show up to workouts, um, sorry, show up to the facility in workout gear, which I thought was interesting, and uh, not huge takeaway there, but the locker room is not open at this point in time, so they actually have to just show up on what they're going to be wearing to work out. Also, they have to have their phone and keys, um, etc., disinfected when they arrive in the building. So lots of little things that you have to pay attention to and not, not exactly business as usual just yet. But as I've said numerous times already in the last week or two, the biggest impetus here in opening facilities around the NBA is to have guys not be working out in other facilities. Um, they want players now to start ramping up a little bit, but at the same time, the bigger concern is having uh, having your uh, your highly paid professional athletes in lifetime fitness somewhere in a public gym. And, uh, the NBA does not want that to happen, so they're not opening up, but it's all going to be uh, regulated, only uh, certain activities allowed, etc. And you can read all about that, I'm sure. Um also, the other thing that happened, uh, this is definitely a minor thing, but I want to just throw in there because it happened earlier um, in the evening on Monday. Sham Sharania of The Athletic, um, citing sources, reported that the NBA has sent teams the ballots to vote on prospects for the 2020 draft combine. I talked about this on the last couple of podcasts as well, but the combine is now formally postponed in addition to the lottery, etc., but the league office, um, at least according to Shams, is evaluating possible dates for the combine and a potentially even going virtual with the combine. Sam Vecini of the Athletic, formerly a guest on this podcast at a couple of different points, um, echoed a similar sentiment, saying that the league does not seem to want, uh, sorry, that the, the league does seem to want to do a combine of some sort. I speculated, and I've heard that you know if they had to just not have a combine, they probably would be able to get by without one. At the same time, I'm sure teams would would love to have at the very at the bare minimum some of the athletic testing and the interviews. The interviews are big because um, that's the one thing you can't get off of uh, film to a to a full degree. Certainly, it'd be useful to have all of the measurements and all that stuff. But film still dictates the day in a lot of in a lot of ways for basketball players. But you can't replace the interview portion, the background, the uh, just getting to know, getting to know guys, how culture stuff will work, um, sort of checking boxes, etc. That I'm sure the NBATs would love to have that happen. So a virtual combine might make some sense, but uh, still the preliminary stages. But at least teams are um, sort of 
weighing in with the NBA now on which prospects should be invited if they do have that combine situation and when and if they reschedule that. We'll see when that happens in addition to the lottery and the draft pushback, etc., etc. Okay, before we get to Ricky, I want to take a second to talk to you about the good folks at Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, and there are absolutely many, many reasons to love Built Bar. On top of the incredible taste, Built Bar is fantastic for anyone that's trying to be health conscious with the ability to maintain or even lose weight while indulging in an absolutely delicious treat. Bars are low calorie, low sugar, high protein, and high fiber, and beyond that, it's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Each bar is covered in 100% chocolate, and unlike some of the others uh, that you might see around the market, the bars are very soft and easy to chew. I can tell you that I've absolutely been loving the banana nut bread flavor. It's my favorite, to be honest with you, but there are many others, including peanut butter brownie, that are also really enjoyable. In fact, there are 16 amazing flavors to choose from, and they all bring a unique flavor profile to the table. I would fully recommend Built Bar, and in order to check this out for yourself, go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON to get $10 off your first order. That is promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. It's an absolutely perfect day to try Built Bar. All right, and with that, here is my conversation with the great Ricky O'Donnell. Ricky, thank you so much for joining me, my friend. How are you on this fine Monday evening? I'm hanging in there. How about you? Yeah, about the same. We're all we're all trying to hang in there uh, at this point in time. Uh, we will definitely talk some NBA draft here. That is the plan, and uh, you are well-equipped to discuss that with me. But before we get into that, I have to ask you, because it was sort of the talk of the internet this weekend, uh, about your Western Illinois journey. I know you started this for... How, how, long, ago, how long ago did you start, did you start the uh, the journey? And I guess fill people in on what you were doing, because I know at one point, like 2,000 people or more were watching you on Twitch uh, over the weekend, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, what a world. When I started this a month ago, if you would have told me that, I never would have believed it because I had never used Twitch at that point. Uh, And still, my understanding of that platform is pretty limited, but uh, (laughs) I did pull it off over the weekend. So I guess, like, you know, the general story behind it was that I was working for SB Nation uh, as a sports writer during a time with no sports. What do you write about? And I was trying to produce four or five pieces a week still, uh, so I had to start to get a little creative in addition to the stuff I was, uh, you know, the normal beats that I cover, covering basketball at all three levels through the lens of the NBA draft. Uh, So I thought it could be fun to write about College Hoops 2K8, which is the last college basketball video game made by 2K Sports, a game that I really love that I've played a bunch since it came out when I was in college. Uh, so I wanted to do it and I wasn't sure like what I should do with this game. Like I was thinking about just writing about how I like the game or how, uh, you know, it's really deep in terms of the features it has and maybe we should bring it back. I was trying to think of the framing and then I was like, I think I'm just going to play a dynasty and like go all the way through it and blog it. And my, uh, you know, when you start the game, you get to choose one of like the lowest rated schools in the game, the one star prestige school. So we're talking like Texas State, North Florida. There's a directional Colorado in there somewhere, probably. (laughs) And the one local school for me, being someone who lived their whole life in the Chicagoland area, was Western Illinois. So I just chose Western Illinois. And I said, you know, my gimmick at the start was that I'm going to play this game Uh, until they win the national championship and I'm going to simulate every game and I'm just going to do the recruiting and I'm just going to blog my way through it. So to my surprise, people actually were really into it. Uh, I published the first article that performed pretty well and that went through like the first year of the dynasty. And then uh, the next story was years two and three. And we actually made the NCAA tournament by winning the Summit League title. Uh, And what I would do is like watch a simulation of the game and then take clips on my phone and then put it together into a YouTube video. Uh, It was all pretty low tech, but to my surprise, the response was really positive and people seemed to enjoy it. Uh, People were emailing me recruiting advice (laughs) and they were, uh, you know, reciting all the names of my players uh, and I was like, wow, this is really wild. So I just k- kept sticking with it, uh, transitioned it into a newsletter when I was furloughed by SB Nation. And that's through Substack. You can find that at Substack or rickyodonald.substack.com. Uh, and then, yeah, this uh, this past week, it was year eight. We made the Sweet 16 for the first time. I 
watch the next two games. We made the final four. So I decided, well, if we're in the final four, I have to figure out how to live stream. I know that uh, that's something that a lot of people are doing these days. So I figured out a way to do it. And I put it on Twitch, and we had over 7,000 people watch at least part of the stream. And at one point, uh, there was 2,400 people, 2,400 concurrent viewers. And it was super fun, and we beat Cal in the uh, Final Four game, and then we took out Kansas in the title game. We beat them by 20. So uh, I won the championship with Western Illinois by just simulating the games and not actually playing any of them. And I'm going to keep it going because uh the response has been positive and i don't really have much else to do so <laughs> yeah why not sign up for the newsletter if you want to get an email follow this video game dynasty i try to make it as fun as it can possibly be so that's yeah, what I've been I, doing. Mean, I definitely recommend checking it out um I, I i don't think i was in it at the very beginning but uh i had seen uh several of these before this weekend and i kind of just watched it from afar uh building up and happened to pop onto the twitch this weekend to check out those uh you know i'm, I'm sure you were a little bit surprised too about how many people there were but i mean it's just kind of a crazy uh thing it was a very well executed idea by the way and that's something i struggle with right now is that i'm not i'm not necessarily the most creative person in the world i do a lot of things well but that's probably not my strongest suit as a writer podcaster person so i was jealous of the idea um and it was cool, man. So I think uh, people should check that out if they haven't already. Um, I had fun watching it, and I will keep uh, keep rolling along with you. So check out the Substack and all that stuff. Um, before we, I guess we we start talking about the NBA draft now. Um, I've been asking this question to everybody as we sort of transition here. Um, it's sort of a broad one, and honestly, people's answers are all over the place. So I'm just going to ask you, like, who? If I asked you who, like, your guy or maybe a guy or two is in this class, that just sort of broadly, like, who are your guys that you really identify with? It could be top top guys that you just like more than everybody else that you're all in on, or it could be someone that you're just ten spots higher on than everybody else is. Do you have a guy in this class that you're sort of in love with? Uh, I like Lamelo Ball. I think that he's my top prospect in this class. Uh. That isn't like a super hot take at this point. I think a no. lot of people have him number one, but uh, he's someone I really like. I like Killian Hayes. I know a lot of people are high on him, too. I have him as about a top three prospect. I like Devin Vassell probably as a top ten prospect. Uh, in terms of like one guy who I really love, though, I don't have that player in this class, really. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these guys I've been following them since high school like rj hampton's a guy who i did multiple features on when he was a high school player in the dallas area uh so he's someone i've watched for a long time i like him but i think that he's more of like a, a work in progress he's going to be sort of a project more so than uh someone who's going to come in and be really good right away but yeah i don't know i don't have a ton of like really strong opinions on a lot of on a, a lot of these guys because i feel like it's one of those draft classes where obviously like draft classes are typically sort of judged by the talent at the top, right? Like yep. if you have really strong talents at the top, it's a strong draft class, regardless of how it is in the middle or at the back end. I think that this draft has pretty weak talent at the top. Like whoever goes number one in this draft, whether it's Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, whoever it is, you would probably feel more comfortable taking them like if five in a normal draft. Uh, but there's just not a Zion Williamson type or even like, a high school player who was as accomplished as Marvin Bagley or RJ Barrett. So instead what you have is a draft class with, I think a lot of guys who could potentially be sort of winning players on good teams in the future, but maybe not like the cornerstone type of guy. Now, of course I was covering the 2014 draft when this was also a common refrain uh, that was the draft that Anthony Bennett went number one. I believe <laughs> yeah. I have the year right. This might be 2013, actually. That was I'm 13, I believe, yeah. 13, yeah. And, you know, Alex Len was possibly going to be the number one pick, and there was Nerlens Noel, but he blew out his knee in February at Kentucky, and, yeah, it ended up being Bennett. But, you know, everyone said, well, there's no top player in that draft. Well, maybe the best player of his generation comes out in that draft, and Giannis uh, going to the Bucks in the middle of the first round. So... I think that this draft, I don't, of course, I don't think there's a Giannis, but I mean, who knows what's going to come out of this draft, but sort of what makes it fun is that there's not the really obvious no-brainer guy at the top, and instead, there's a bunch of guys who could potentially be the one to break through. 
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I'm with you. I think that's kind of the consensus now is that, you know, there's not this impressive talent at the top, but it can, I've sort of been on record as saying, you know, after a certain point, this draft is fairly normal. And I mean that in a, in a good way. You know, a lot of the takes are just, you know, this is a bad draft, which, you know, if you take the overall viewpoint, it probably is because of what you're talking about at the top. But like from a certain point on, it's fairly normal. It's not as if there's just no prospects in this draft. There's a lot of guys that you would like under normal circumstances that you probably just have to like them five spots higher in this draft. Um, so it's interesting to me, um, you know, the Hawks, the, the team that I cover the most by far is in this spot where they could be picking at one or two. They could be picking at six or seven. So there's a lot. There's still that uncertainty at this moment in time pre-lottery. And, um, you know, as much as people have even been asking me, and I've answered this before, but people have been asked because no, everybody knows that the top of the draft is so bad. People ask me if they, if the Hawks even want the top pick. And I understand where that comes from. I think you still want it, even if you just want to trade it. But I think I understand that question a lot more than I normally would because there just isn't that kind of guy. I also feel like uh, you're probably better set up than a lot of people for this. Um, there's so much uncertainty from, you know, there's this normal audience. I think we're definitely in the diehard category, but even beyond that, um, of people that sort of usually scout quote unquote off of college basketball. And this year there are some college guys that are in the mix, but a lot of these guys that we're talking about in the top five, seven, are either guys who went overseas like Lamelo and RJ Hampton, um, who, guys who are already overseas like Denny um, and Killian Hayes, or you have your guys like James Wiseman and Cole Anthony that had very limited time playing college basketball. So a lot more of the work this year has to be pre-college than in recent years. And I know you've been watching a lot of these guys since high school. Um, does that does that sound about right to you? I know it's like kind of a weird mystery draft, but I think it definitely helps to have seen these guys before they actually got to college. Yeah, I think absolutely. And that's going to be something that I'm really interested in tracking uh, over the next few years is guys who, let's say, had a very strong high school profile. I mean, you have one in Cam Reddish yep. who, follow, who didn't exactly follow up with college success, right? Like I think Reddish in a lot of ways was underwhelming to people. I really liked what Cam Reddish did as a rookie uh, in, you know, more of a refined role with like more realistic expectations set for him. But uh, yeah, I think a couple things that are interesting about this draft class. One is that like the top players in the last draft – in 2019, Zion Williamson, John Morant, Barrett, DeAndre Hunter, all of those guys were pretty much like the best players in the country also. Like Zion was obviously the best player in the country. Yep. Morant was built up as one of the best players in the country, and by the numbers, he was. Uh, and then he had, you know, the amazing March Madness moment where they win a game. Uh, he played, you know, he had a triple-double in the NCAA tournament. Barrett came in as this very hyped, accomplished recruit at the prep level, and he put up great counting stats, if nothing else. Uh, and then, you know, DeAndre Hunter is on the team that wins the national championship. Whereas this year, you look at the top prospects, and it's like, all right, Anthony Edwards was on a bad Georgia team, and he shot 40% <laughs> from the field. And then you have a bunch of guys who played internationally. Then you have Tyrese Halliburton, who got injured. And then you have, uh, you know, Cole Anthony, who got hurt and came back. And then you have... You know, just uh, just a lot of guys who weren't either playing on the best teams in the country or didn't have big college profiles. And then, like you mentioned, obviously a huge international influence, uh, even American players playing internationally like LaMelo and RJ Hampton, who, you know, should both be lottery picks, I think. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really weird draft to scout off of. And I'm interested to see, like, will NBA teams actually perform better in this draft without March Madness sort of fooling them. Like someone like Obi Toppin, maybe he goes top three if Dayton wins the national title. Maybe he still goes top three. I, I think we have really no idea how this draft is going to shake out. There's so much volatility in it uh, at this point in the process. But I would think that, like, you know, the fact that there wasn't an NCAA tournament, that probably hurts Obi Toppin, assuming his team would have made a run. And uh, I'm interested to see if there will be more hits in misses than normal or a better hit rate than normal with teams just scouting off tape more so than like a narrative based thing that comes from the, from March madness. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to sort of follow that because um, I think teams have gotten a little bit better about that in recent years already, 
but not having anything to go off of to get fooled off of is probably a good thing, and at least for some organizations. Um, and even to your other point about you know these guys not being top college players and last year's guys being you know most of the top guys were legitimately you know high end college players the guy you just mentioned Obi Toppin is really the only projected top 10 pick that was like a legitimately elite college basketball player this season um you could certainly say that Devin Devin Vassell was a good college player Isaac Cora was a good college player but um and Okongwu as well was a very good college player but he was just kind of languishing in relative obscurity at, at USC right. um Toppin of course is like probably the national player of the year at least one of the one of the two or three contenders for that. Um, and that's just a different caliber. I'm not saying that, other, that the other guys were bad, but even Edwards, like, yeah, he had put up numbers at Georgia, but it wasn't like he was on your sh- your short list of National Player of the Year candidates in college basketball this year because he just wasn't that guy, whereas OB kind of was. But the other guys you talk about in that, in that mix were like Luca Garza and, you know, right. other guys who are, just not, who are not big-time NBA prospects. So it's an interesting confluence in that way. Um, let's talk about Obi real quick since we're already here. Um, what do you make of Obi Toppin? Because he's, I think, a guy that probably doesn't, it probably isn't going to be a Hawk most likely because of the fit stuff that would be there. Maybe they love him. I don't know. But uh, what do you make of him? Because he's obviously older. The defense is a question. But as we just said, he was pretty awesome this season. Yeah, I mean, his numbers offensively were absolutely insane this year. He finished in the 99th percentile of points per possession in the country. Uh, he was like number three in the country in true shooting percentage. It was like 68.5% or something. And he showed off three point range. So all of that seems really good because coming into the year, he was mostly just known as a guy who dunked a lot. I think he might've led college basketball in dunks like a year ago before this past season. Uh, so he definitely like fleshed out his offensive skill set, and he was a dominant college player. He did win a uh, national player of the year. Uh, the AP National Player of the Year Award, I believe. Uh, I ranked the best players in college basketball this year for SB Nation. I had him number one. I thought that he was the most uh, impactful player in college basketball. But projecting him up a level, I think, is going to be tough because he's not a good defensive player. And he's sort of a traditional power forward. And if there's one position on the floor that the modern NBA has sort of... uh, change the responsibilities of it's the power forward like now playing that spot you typically have a big wing more so than like a secondary big man obviously everyone who's listening to this podcast knows that so with Toppin I think you know you have to wonder how he's going to fit in defensively if he's playing center and he probably has to because he's 6'9 220 pounds or I think he's likely to play center you know can he really be the backbone of a defense And I don't think he can be just because what I've seen from him, uh, despite his athletic gifts and sort of uh, the agility he plays with defensively and the length and the explosiveness, uh, I just don't think he really processes things very quickly on the defensive end. And center is the one position in basketball, I would say, where for sure defense is more important than offense. So then if he's a four, it's like, all right, now he's got to guard the big wings who typically play that position in the NBA. Can he do that? And then is the three-point shot for real? It did look pretty good this past year at Dayton. Uh, He made 39% of his threes. He attempted, like, I think three a game maybe. Uh, So it looked the shot looked good, but I do wonder how that translates to the deeper line with faster athletes closing out on you when you're not the most athletic player on the floor. So I would say in general, I'm not super in on Obi Toppin because I think his defense is a big question mark, and I think that he's just sort of a tough positional fit in the league. Uh, with that being said, though, I mean, you guys have someone in John Collins who I think there's a lot of parallels uh, between Toppin and Collins. Collins quietly had a very good year last year for the Hawks and even in the impact stats I think he was better than he's ever been and uh he I think you could speak more to this but I thought John Collins had a really solid year so if that's sort of the archetype the Toppins coming out of you could also throw in maybe someone like Marvin Bagley in there I think Bagley might be uh like a little higher caliber athlete than Toppin just because of like how quickly he gets off the floor and how quickly he can get off the floor multiple times. But I think the general idea is still sort of the same. So the story with Toppin is basically he could be a very good finisher. He should be a very efficient scorer, as he has been throughout his college career. I wonder about him defensively, and I wonder about how he fits in 
to a team structure the way the league is trending today. I'm definitely with you. I think it's fairly safe to think he's going to be a a good offensive player who's very helpful on the end of the floor. He's skilled. I know he's old, but he also was a super late bloomer, which I guess takes some of the worry about age off the table for me. But defensively, I just don't, uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot of confidence there. I think, you know, Collins is a comp that's been out there a lot for Obi. I think that's an extremely high end outcome for Obi Toppin because Collins, like you said, was very good this season, and Collins is also, I think, a little bit bigger, um, a little bit taller anyway, a little bit longer, um, and and probably a better athlete, honestly, at least in terms of like quick twitch. Topic can obviously dunk and has some vertical explosiveness, but is not the most uh, explosive guy laterally, etc. So, yeah, I think he's a pretty good, a pretty good prospect. That also, um, I think, you know, every every time I see him either mocked or discussed as like a top three, top five guy, I kind of cringe because he's one of those pretty obvious ones to me that would not be in that range normally, but maybe this draft will push him up there and it could certainly work. I just, I worry about the defense too. And uh, at that position, you kind of struggle to build um, quality teams if you don't have defensive um, capable players uh, in the front court. Um, I want to transition and ask you, um, I feel like, I feel like these three guys are getting sort of lumped together. So I'm going to ask you about them sort of, um, in total, and I'll let you sort of talk about which guys you like more. You talked about, you've referenced, I think all three of them already at some point on this podcast, but, um, because the Hawks are in this range potentially, and these are, these guys get mocked, I get asked this all the time. So, um, you have, De- you have Devin Vassell, you have Isaac, Isaac Okoro and, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, and they're all, uh, they're not they're not all the same for any, by any stretch of the imagination, but but they're all kind of wing size. Halliburton's a little bit smaller, other guys a little bit bigger, but they're all sort of mocked in the same range. They're all discussed in, in similar ranges. Do you have a favorite out of those three, and uh, do you have a least favorite out of those three? Yeah, it's funny because for the Hawks, I mean, they just took DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish, so I would think that like you know if they were to take Vassal or. Uh, Coro that that would sort of seem a little redundant to me uh whereas Halliburton is more of like definitely a backcourt guy he's a guard he would give you sort of a different look with Trey so in terms of like which guy I like the most out of that group I'm gonna say that I like Vassal the most I think that uh you know he's probably the most uh I don't want to say he's the most limited in terms of upside, but like in terms of creation upside, he's probably the most limited. Like he's not a guy who you're going to give him the ball and he's going to like get a bucket. You know what I mean? He's more of someone who just really has that DNA role player where I think or that role player DNA where he can be maybe like a Robert Covington type or someone who succeeds in a similar way that Covington does in that he's six, seven, he's a strong base. Very sharp defensively, always forces a lot of turnovers, doesn't turn the ball over on offense. Uh, if you if you just watch him play, you can tell the guy just knows how to play basketball. Sharp rotations, quick decisions with the ball, quick decisions when he doesn't have the ball. Shoots it well. He hit 41% of his threes this year, rebounds well for his position. So he's never going to be like a big scorer, but I think that as the league becomes increasingly more positionless, this is the type of guy you want on your team. Uh, like I said, I do think he'd be a little redundant on the Hawks roster, but I would say of the three, he's probably my favorite. Then you have a Coro, who's the one guy I've just really gone back and forth on. Uh, basically, when a Coro really started to gain like maybe top five draft type as we were getting into conference play of the college season. That is when opposing teams started defending him totally different. And by that, I mean they started ignoring him on the perimeter because (laughs) if you know anything about Isaac Okoro, it's that he is not a very refined jump shooter. Now, Okoro is great at a lot of things. 6'6", 225 pounds, strong as a bull. His teams literally never lose. Uh, His high school team went undefeated. Auburn started the year like, I don't remember the exact mark off the top of my head, but they started like, 17-0 17-0 and 0 or something. And Okoro, while being a freshman, he was no doubt their most talented player. Uh, great defensive player. Someone who had lots of sort of uh, traces of even being a rim protector, even though he's short. And it's because he's so strong. He understands verticality. He understands when to rotate and how quickly to do it. So I think that Okoro, the thing with Okoro is that if he hits like his 
99th percentile outcome, like the best possible player Isaac Okoro can be, he's probably the best player in the draft. Because that means that he's going to improve a little bit as a shooter, or significantly as a shooter. He already is pretty good with the ball in his hands as a passer and as a decision maker. And defensively, he's really good. He's really versatile. He's sharp. Uh, he processes the game quickly mentally. So I like Okoro, but... You know, if you put him in like a low usage three and D role early in his NBA career, I could also see him having like very little impact on the game because teams will just ignore him on the perimeter. Uh, I think it's going to take him a little bit before he figures out how to make an impact offensively if he's just positioned around the arc. To me, I think you got to move him all over the floor and you kind of have to, you know, put him in the dunker spot sometimes. Uh, try to get creative with the actions you put him in, maybe as, you know, the screen setter in a lot of instances, uh, maybe as the ball handler in some instances and let him actually show off the passing ability. But he's such a flawed but intriguing player because he doesn't have the jump shot, but he really has everything else. And then I would say my least favorite of the three is Halliburton, who uh, you could make the case for might have, uh, you know, the highest floor of any of these guys just because he is six foot six he is an elite spot up shooter he can handle the ball and he's a great like ball mover in the half court is how I would describe him like I don't know if I want to say he's a great passer because to me part of being a great passer is like bending the defense to your whim and then whipping the pass and creating advantage situations I don't know if Halliburton's going to be able to create in the half court uh, for an NBA team. He wasn't even that great at it in isolation, pick and roll situations at the college level for granted, a very bad Iowa state team. Uh, but in terms of like playing a role, like could Halliburton be similar to Lonzo ball? I think so. He reminds me more of Lonzo than LaMelo does, honestly, because it is a game based around ball movement. Uh, Halliburton's obviously the better spot up shooter, but you know, similar to Lonzo, He's not someone who's really going to burn you off the dribble and finish uh, over length in the half court. So, yeah, those three guys are all really interesting. Uh, and if the Hawks do want another wing, I think that uh, there, there's definitely all three of those guys could be options. Yeah, I, I think I'm actually with you on all of that. Um, you know, I feel like Vassell is like the easiest projection. You kind of know what he is. I have some fear about his lack of creation, his lack of burst athletically, but I think he, he, he's a good defender. He knows he knows where to be. Um, I trust his shooting. I think he's going to be a pretty solid role player. Um, Okoro, I've always liked. I got a little skittish when people started turning the corner on him as this top five guy like you referenced, but um, I think it's also important. I'm glad, you met, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. Having him be this like stand in the corner spot-up shooter is not the way to use him, and I hope that a team does not try to do that. Um, not I mean, not only because he can't really shoot right now, but also because he is underrated and, and really is skilled with the ball in his hands and needs to be on the move and using his burst and his strength. And I think I'm hoping that whoever drafts him, whether it be the Hawks or otherwise, kind of sees that for what it is and doesn't make him just be this, you know, traditional 3 and D guy who just stands in the corner. I don't think that's probably going to be bad news for him um, if it happens. But yeah, all interesting guys, to be sure. Um one other guy is sort of a different position, but uh, we're making our way up to the top of the board, at least for me anyway. But um, Denny Abdia is an interesting guy in that he's kind of on his own in terms of positional fit and the way that people are talking about him. Um, you know, he's kind of this hybrid forward type. People talk about him maybe being a point forward. I don't necessarily see that necessarily, but he is a guy who can handle the ball. He's bigger to the point where I think he might be a four long term. And he's kind of the only one, the only guy really that's a projected top 10 ish or even more pick that is that kind of combo forward type. Everybody else is either a natural wing like Vassell or Coro or smaller than that or a true big. And he's kind of in the middle. And he's also a guy that people have seen more of now, but he is, you know, he has, he has a shooting question, et cetera. What do you make of him? Because there are times when I see him talked about as a guy who could go in the top three. And then there are times when I see people, uh, I think when I watch him, I also get a little bit sketched about him even be even like, I would say well below that. So what do you think of Denny? 
Yeah, I think definitely a polarizing prospect. For me, he's not one of my guys in this draft. He's not someone who I would say I'm definitely in on. I do see him as a four. He is being built up right now as a combo forward. Uh, I I sort of doubt he's going to be able to handle minutes at the three in the league, but I guess if you want the sales pitch on Denny, (laughs) it's that he's just pretty good across the board. Right. Like I think that he has good size at six, nine. He can handle the ball in the open floor. He can pass the ball. His shooting is not great, but perhaps will improve going forward. That's definitely his biggest swing skill, I would say. And then defensively, he's someone who hits the glass pretty hard. Uh, he's, you know, has a strong enough base to be able to defend NBA forwards, I think. Uh, offensively, you know, he, he gets very aggressive when he's in the open floor, which is great to see. He'll always try to force the action. Uh, he is able to leverage his own scoring ability to make his teammates better with his passing. And he was a relatively efficient scorer, I believe, uh, in half court situations. So Denny, I don't think has like a standout skill. I don't really see him having all-star upside, but he did score relatively efficiently and he does have a well-rounded skill set in general so i think you know if you just want a guy who's going to be a good piece and who sort of plays a sort of positionless style of the game that everyone likes that he would be a guy you would want to take a chance on now i just worry he doesn't really have an elite skill he doesn't really have something to fall back on uh, he's very much just like pretty good at everything rather than elite in any one category. Uh, I'm a little worried that his finishing won't be as good against NBA athletes, against NBA length. I'm a little bit worried that his lack of shooting is going to handicap him. Uh, but, I, you know, in the open floor, I trust him more than I trust a lot of these guys. And the game does get played increasingly more in transition these days or semi-transition which is when his skill set can be uh, more useful so he's going to be a polarizing prospect if you had to say like in or out on him for me I would probably say out but uh, you can make the case and in a draft like this one when there's so much unknown I certainly don't think he'd be a bad pick for anyone and I think that you know potentially he he would sort of fit what the Hawks could use as potentially a secondary ball handler in the front court, I think he probably has more ball handling and passing ability for sure than Hunter and probably more so than Cam as well. So he could be interesting and, uh, you know, maybe playing with someone like Trey Young would be the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah, I, I'm I'm also kind of with you. I think I would lean out as well. But at the same time, if you start getting into the back half of the top 10, I can sort of see it, um, the argument for it anyway. And I, I think Denny's going to be an NBA player that's going to be useful. So that helps a little bit. I do like his floor, provided the shooting isn't just a disaster. I mean, the free throw percentage has gotten a lot of attention, I think rightfully so. I think if he can shoot even a little bit, it's going to be fine. And guys at his age that produce and are able to play real minutes um, in the league that he's in, that's usually a really good sign for you. I'm just not sure what the upside really is. I think that's kind of where I'm a little bit lower on him. Sounds like you probably agree with that. I don't know. He does a lot of things well, but I'm not sure he's ever going to be a starter for you, like on a good team, fully entrenched starter, which is not a bad thing. But if you're taking him in the top five and you don't get that, that's not great. So, yeah, I'm, I'm more toward the back half of the top ten, back half of the lottery for me on him, which means probably someone's going to like him more than I will. But... I think he would be interesting for the Hawks, especially if they land in like that seven, that seven, eight range. If they got unlucky in the lottery, he could be a guy that we talk about a lot more once the lottery is actually set. Um, by the way, before we get into the last couple of guys here, uh, what do you make of all the just the, the weirdness of not having the lottery and having this downtime? I don't want to have the whole COVID discussion necessarily, but it's. It's just kind of bizarre that, you know, I know you're probably in the same boat as I am. We, we've been talking about this class for so long. It's now mid-May. The lottery should be happening, like, right now. Um, and we know it's not going to happen for quite some time. And I feel like there's, like, no light at the end of the tunnel. Is it, is, is it as weird for you as it is for me? Obviously, the whole world is weird. But just the, the situation where we don't know anything about this draft class and when it's actually going to happen it just keeps throwing me off. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when people ask me about this, I give the same answer every time, which is that I feel like we don't know much more now than we did when the (laughs) pandemic first started. Uh, So, yeah, on the list of things that are very strange about 
life right now. The fact <laughs> that there's no NBA draft lottery is very far down on the list. True. But it is weird, and the nice thing is that the lottery and even the draft are things that can absolutely happen. Uh, even during a pandemic, the WNBA pulled off their draft, the NFL pulled off their draft. Uh, I think, you know, probably by the time we're looking at an NBA draft, and I do think that, you know, the NBA is going to do everything it can to finish the season. Who knows if it'll happen? Again, we have no idea as we record this podcast right now, but... Uh, it could be a while before the draft. Like typically the draft is in late June. I wouldn't be surprised if we have a draft in like September, maybe even October this year. You know what I mean? So we got a lot of time and uh, I wish we had a a little more interesting draft class, but like maybe the fact that this draft class isn't so obvious makes it more interesting. I guess you could argue it either way, but yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, at least on the bright side, once the lottery happens, like last year, when the lottery happened, we knew pretty quickly um, at least number one was a lock and number two became a lock pretty quickly as well. So like we kind of knew probably one, two, and three, if we're being honest, about how the order was going to go. It was the order that we all would have guessed the night of the lottery. So that yeah. took out some of the intrigue. And this year, that will not be the case, almost certainly. I mean, maybe maybe somebody falls in love with Melo uh, at number one, and we kind of know that early on. But other than that, there's at least going to be more intrigue, which is uh, which is helpful when, when you're trying to kill time like we are on this podcast for several months, as you alluded to. Um, all right, before I let you get out of here, I have to ask you about the top guys. Uh, we'll start with a guy you have number one in Melo. Um, in addition to just asking about him as a player, do you think the Hawks could draft LaMelo Ball? Is a question that I've been asking everyone because – Obviously, Melo is the best with his with, with the ball in his hands. He's not a great shooter. He's more of a point guard, and the Hawks, of course, have Trey Young. So, uh, talk about uh, him as a player, but also if you think it would work in Atlanta. Yeah, I think it could work. I mean, it would definitely be a wild science experiment, basically. But early I on, would be wi- weird. <laughs> like I would your, your, one, like, your one or two would be, would be weird for sure. Yeah. I would say, like, why not go for it, though? Like, that would definitely give you a look that basically no one else has in the entire league, which is two super high-level ball handlers and passers. And you put those two guys on the floor together, and I don't think anyone in the NBA has two guys who can create like that. Uh, Melo's probably spot-up shooting hurts him a little bit. I wonder if Mello would really be into the idea of playing with Trey Young. Like to me, it kind of feels like Mello would probably like want to be the focal point of the team, and that's not going to happen with Trey because Trey Young's already awesome. Uh, but you know, if you could project it down the line a little bit, and those guys could stay together and they could have good chemistry, potentially it could be super devastating. I think. Like I think it could be awesome and interesting and something we've never really seen before. So. If I'm the Hawks, I would absolutely be willing to take LaMelo Ball. Obviously, I do have him as the top player in this class. Uh, I have him as the top player because I think he has the highest upside. What that upside is still sort of remains a question mark. People ask me for a comparison on him all the time. And usually what I say is a six foot seven Rondo with better shooting, with off-the-dribble shooting. Hmm. Uh, still... Definitely not a focal point on a championship team, probably, but could potentially be a very useful player. Rondo was a very good player when he was younger. Uh, I don't even know why I'm throwing out comparisons when you're not asking for him, just well, because no, no, I'm comparisons with you. are always a fool's game. But Yeah, comps are really hard, and I think it's he's a guy that I have not come up with one. That That's what I sort of felt my head nodding along with you when you said that, because I haven't heard a good mellow comp yet that I like. And comps are hard, like you said. Like I, I usually hate comps, and people always, I know you know this very well, people always want to know what the comps are for everyone. And I, I generally try to shy away from them unless I absolutely have to. But uh, he's a guy who is a really hard one, especially if you don't know how it's going to work in terms of his shooting and his defense, because those are the big questions with Melo. I like Melo too, quite a bit. I have him number one as well. I think he does have the highest upside realistically, just because I think he does have... He's probably the only guy I could see actually becoming that legitimate number one focal point. Um, and even then, it's hard to project that, but at least it's possible that he could do it because of the passing is just so ridiculous and the size that he has and the, the feel that he has. Um, one more thing about Melo before I ask you about um, Ant and uh, Killian Hayes. Do you... <laughs> 
this is a weird one, but if if the Hawks have the number one pick, this is a question I get all the time. Would you would you take Melo at one? I always say I would I would put the for sale sign out immediately if I was the Hawks and try to trade the pick immediately. But if that's not an option and you are Travis Schlank and you have the number one pick in this in this draft, would you still take Melo? Because I I usually say no even while acknowledging that I have Melo number one on my board. Yeah, I definitely take him. I mean, here's the thing about the Hawks: like they have a lot of young players. They're very bad. Trey is already <laughs> awesome. Yes. So it's like, why not just try something crazy and give me two hyper elite ball handlers and passers? And the thing with Lamelo that doesn't get talked about a lot is that guy has the ball on the string, man. Like, oh yeah, ball handling is something that basically you could say for every single prospect, especially someone who's six foot seven entering the league, is you know the thing they need to improve the most. Uh. All like six foot seven guys, it seems like, oh, well, if he improves as a ball handler, it could really happen for him. Lamelo's a nasty ball handler, and that just plays into his great vision, his great feel for the game. And I'll touch on his shooting like this. Like, there's no doubt that having a pull up three off the dribble with deep range, that's like probably the most important trick in the bag for a guard in the modern yep. NBA, right? But a lot of guys do not work on that coming up because traditionally those have been known as very bad shots. Even like five years ago, six years ago, if you took a transition three, that was crazy. Now the transition three is like everyone does it. It's one of the most utilized shots in the league, right? So Lamelo was getting reps with these deep off the dribble shots when no one else was. In some ways it might've worked against him, because uh, even the way he like shoots the ball, it looks like he's like efforting to shoot it a lot of times. He doesn't really have a natural, easy stroke, but he does cash it quite a bit. And when he hits it off the dribble, it's just impossible to defend. So what I would like to think with Melo, a possible sales pitch for Lamelo is like, he's been working on these off the dribble threes with deep range at a young age when no one else has been doing that. No, it's not refined yet, but that is like, a super high degree of difficulty shot that if you can hit it efficiently is extremely effective. So potentially like he is in a better position to be able to hit deep threes off the dribble uh, because he has been trying it. And while everyone else has been saying, you know, this is a sign of bad shot selection, potentially it's just getting live reps for something that could be really valuable down the road. Yeah, I like that. I like that point, too. And, and I, I didn't really answer the question, but yes, I would take him because I think that I would take him number one if I'm the Hawks because I think that it would just be a really unique and creative way to go about roster building, which uh, could give the Hawks potentially a leg up if Lamelo was to hit his top end outcome. Yeah, I, I'm not dugging on this at all. I, I do think that if the Hawks win the lottery, which it'd be pretty funny um, if the Hawks won the lottery this year after never winning it ever, um, that'd be a very Hawks thing to do. But if they if they do win it, I am gonna I would say uh, vehemently argue for them to try to trade it. But if they don't trade it, I won't be upset or I won't be bothered or I won't think it's ridiculous at all. But if they draft Melo, you know Trey's Trey's such a such a good shooter that if they get if they get him working off the ball, it can work. And there's a lot of value to having that kind of number one ball handler on the court for 48 minutes a game. You want to stagger those guys. There's all kinds of things, and Melo's size helps in that regard. So. I think it's definitely uh, it, would, it would definitely be interesting, and I think it would be very defensible because I do have Melo number one, like you do. Um, uh, let me ask you this. Yeah, I'm sorry to change to interrupt no, you and change the conversation slightly. What would be the ideal, realistic return if the Hawks were to get the number one pick and trade it? What would be like you know ideal but realistic? Like, would you want Bradley Beal? I was gonna like, say I'm just interested um, like. Beal's not my what, what favorite fit, but this is the problem. And honestly, this is behind the curtain a little bit. We we discuss this all the time in, in the P Street Hoop Slack channel because I, I think ultimately the Hawks, not, I'm, I'm not reporting this, but I think it would make a lot of sense for the Hawks to try to do a consolidation trade pretty soon, um, whether it be for a couple of their young guys to, for a high-end star or if they get a number one pick, for instance, someone like Beal. Like Beal isn't necessarily available, quote-unquote, but everyone kind of understands that he could be available and has been available before. Um, it's it's hard because ideally you would hope that the number one overall pick and the shine that comes with that might net you a guy in Beal's range, even if it's not Beal, someone like that could be a, could be a, a guy that makes sense. And I think... 
ultimately you have to consider that if you're the Hawks because they, you know, for better or worse, the Hawks kind of want to speed up a little bit now. They're not going to ruin the rebuild by going too far too fast, I would hope, but they definitely want to accelerate a little. And I think turning that pick into a legitimately like a top 40 player in the league would be very um, common sense kind of thing to do. I mean, I, I, I really have a hard time figuring out what the actual return is. And people always ask me to... I don't know. It's either it's either someone like Beal on that level, like a top 30 player in the league, or it's like a really good player and a pick, if that makes sense. Like the, like the fifth pick and a good rotation player would make some sense. I don't know. It's kind of hard until we know the lottery order, but it, it's, I don't, it's, it's a situation where they would have to be trying to... They don't have a glaring need either. That's the other thing about this Hawks team is that they have a lot of young players. They certainly have guys that they could upgrade on, but they don't have this one glaring need now that they traded for Clecapella either. So there isn't that spot to just circle. I'm talking in a circle as well, but I don't know. Either either a legitimate high-end player a la Beal or a package that includes probably one pick and someone who's established because they're not going to want to trade down for picks, I don't think, only. They want to get better now is kind of the thing that I want to point out. I don't know. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's it's just interesting. I mean, because normally I, I'm a big trade down guy. Like last year, I argued they should trade down and they did the opposite and traded up, which made me laugh. Right. But, you know, this year it's not, you know, one of the popular suggestions and one that, uh, um, you know, it's been out there in the past is like, if the Hawks get unlucky in the draft and land at six or seven, could they trade down for like Boston's three picks? And it's like, well... That, that pure value wise that actually would be something that I would normally like to do but if you're the Hawks and you already have a bunch of young players you don't want three first round rookies I don't think and, and I'm pretty confident they don't want that so I don't know the traditional trade down stuff doesn't necessarily work as well if you're where the Hawks are and you're trying to get better right now like they, they're talking about the playoffs for next year Lloyd Pierce came out and didn't shy away from him it was like the playoffs are the goal and they put they sort of put that out there in a way that rebuilding teams don't always do and it's just one public statement, but they, they want to get better, I think. And Trey wants to get better. And you have to you have to start thinking about trying to keep your superstar happy too. So, I don't know. Yeah, I was just going to ask, do you think that pressure is coming from, like, them listening to the less enlightened portion of the <laughs> fan base? Or do you think that that's internal pressure coming from Trey? It's probably a combination of a lot of things. I think Trey, you know, there was plenty out there that was reported about Trey and Lloyd, Trey and Lloyd Pierce, and I think Trey uh, is a competitive guy that wants to win, and now he sort of made the jump in a way that I don't think anybody saw coming to that level in year two. But now that you have your guy that, you know, made that star jump, I'm sure he wants to get better, and I'm sure he'll, he'll, be, he'll sort of let that be known. Ownership also has been known to meddle a little bit in this market, um, at least – reportedly has been able to do that and I think you know they just they're gonna want to see some returns because rebuilding is hard and it's something that I, I advocated for the rebuild I liked when they started rebuilding but they've now gone three straight seasons of 31s or less and uh after being in the playoffs for 10 straight years people get impatient including 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 ownership so I don't know I think it's a combination of all things, um, and you know, job security too. I mean, not that I don't, I don't think Travis Schlenk would be in any trouble, but if Floyd Pierce, if they struggle next year after making some investments, and you could see a coaching change, that wouldn't surprise me, it, just because of all the stuff that's been out there with Trey and the fact that you'd be in year three and with some pressure. I don't know. There's all kinds of factors. Sure. Yeah, I uh, I I simultaneously hope that they get the number one pick for the content. Um, and all the stuff that it would allow me to talk about. And also I would uh, dread it in some ways because uh, some of the crazy talk comes when you have the number one pick too. Sure. <laughs> Just for my own sanity, it would be good and bad. Um, and, I mean, who am I talking to? You're, you're, you're a Bulls fan, so you, you know it all very well, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, before, I, before I let you get out of here, I have to ask you about the two guys we haven't talked about yet, and that's Anthony Edwards and Killian Hayes. I know you referenced Killian Hayes earlier, but Edwards is the guy that we that I have talked about the most because of the fact that he is from Georgia, he played at Georgia, and um, he is the guy that's, at least early on in the process, when the Hawks were mocked at number one, was often a Hawks guy that got mocked to them, so there's been a lot of discussion about him. I think I'm a little bit lower on Edwards than some people are. But uh, what do you think about those two guys? Because at least on the internet, I feel like those two guys are usually discussed in that two, three range somewhere together. Yeah, I like the idea of Edwards and Trey, I think. 
as I'm processing it in my head. It's like Edwards to me is really intriguing, but I don't know if I want to give Anthony Edwards the ball and tell him, hey, man, go create in the half court in the NBA like that. I don't know about. But if you can put Anthony Edwards in advantage situations where he can leverage his uh, incredible athleticism, his really elite shot making ability at times, and the fact that when he decides to get to the rim, he's an absolute monster. Uh, I think that, you know, Trey potentially spoon feeding him offensive opportunities would be really interesting now. Unfortunately, Edwards has all this great. Uh, you know, this great physical package of like, you know, frame, length, uh, athleticism, explosiveness and all these different ways. Uh, but he just doesn't really consistently utilize it on the defensive end. A lot of it is just inattentiveness. A lot of it to me seems like he's not processing the what's happening on the floor quickly enough. That is also a thing that happens with him on the offensive end. Uh, which is why I said I worry about him being a you know a half court creator earlier in his career, but uh, Edwards is really talented. There's no doubt. He's super young for his draft class. He is a high high level athlete. He has some really unique shot making ability. Even if the percentages aren't great, I think he only shot forty percent from the field for Georgia in the regular season. But it's just, just a lot of bad shots. I mean, it's just it's, what it is. He's exactly. he's, he's he's settled so much and. I'll let you finish, but to your point that you just made about Edwards in Atlanta, I've actually argued that if I was Edwards' agent, that's Atlanta's where I'd want him to go. Because I think the worst thing that could happen to Anthony Edwards is have him be the number one option somewhere. And in Atlanta, he won't be the number one option, which that's very simplistic in some ways. But I also think that um, he his best chance to succeed is if he's not asked to be a like franchise savior. Like if he goes to like Detroit and they make him the number one the number one part of the offense and rebuild around him. That probably isn't going to go well, I don't think. But in Atlanta, yeah. in Atlanta as a complimentary piece from day one where it's like, hey, Anthony, do this, this, and this, and Trey will make you better, I think that actually would, would help him quite a bit. Yeah, I'll say that I also did a big reported feature on him. I talked to him, talked to him, his high school coach, a bunch of people around him, his trainer. This was right when there were rumors that he might reclassify. Uh, it was coming off his big AAU summer on the Under Armour circuit when he really made a name for himself and developed into like a top 10 recruit. And then people kept moving him up and up and up as the high school season started. And I interviewed him, I think it was in January of 2019 or December of 2018, one of those two. And uh, he was great to talk to. I found him to be like, I really liked him when I was talking to him. He was uh, personable and he was interesting and he was sort of like considering what I was asking him and giving me thoughtful answers. So uh, I think that, you know, if Anthony Edwards is the pick for the Hawks and while, you know, his stats tell the story of him being like this super athlete who isn't efficient and who has all this like raw upside but doesn't really know how to play the game, I think he can win you over a little bit if you interact with him, if you hear him talk. Uh, and being a local kid, I, I don't know how it is in Georgia, but in Chicago – people just go crazy for the local kids. I mean, the high school basketball scene here has really like, you know, dedicated following and the kids who come out of this high school scene are just like Chicago boys for life. We always ride for those guys. I know I do. And a lot of the <laughs> basketball fans in the city do as well. Uh, so it would be really interesting if Edwards was to end up with the Hawks, with Trey, uh, I think that as long as there's not too much pressure on him, that the fan base would eventually really like him. And, you know, his shot making, I think, gets underrated a little bit because, of, like you said, the shot selection was so bad. But, man, when he gets hot, that kid is a he's a flamethrower. Like he can score, you know, he could have a 20 point quarter as a rookie and it wouldn't surprise me because he can really get that hot. Uh, but not the best decision maker always. And no. for someone who. Uh, still 18 years old, doesn't turn 19 until August. It's going to take a while. But, you know, the raw tools are in, in place for him to be one of the best players in this draft class. There's no doubt. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree. Um, last last thing, do you uh, we talked about we talked about LaMelo and Trey. Um, do you feel the same way about Killian Hayes and Trey? Because Killian Hayes is also a guy who's better with the ball in his hands. Great passer, et cetera, et cetera. 
Do you think that would work in Atlanta as a sort of secondary ball handler type? Maybe you could play a little bit at the two and kind of be that, you know, complimentary piece. Does that work for you in Atlanta, you think? See, I like that idea. I don't know how Trey would feel about it. I don't know how the players would feel about it. But I really like that idea just because it's interesting. And it's something that we haven't really seen in the NBA, like college teams do this all the time where they run two point guards in the backcourt. I'm thinking of the Kansas team with Frank Mason and Devonte Graham, where they were both natural point guards or, uh, there's just been a bunch of college teams who have done this over the years. And I think it just gives you a dimension. That's like really interesting when you have two high level ball handlers and passers. Hayes is kind of more of a combo guard than a pure point guard. I think that, uh, he's going to probably want to play point guard because that's where, his ceiling is probably the highest. He's another guy who's very, very young, still 18 years old. Uh, him and Edwards, I think their birthdays are like a week apart. So uh, he's on the same timeline as him. And LaMelo is very young, too, obviously. So youth is a big factor for these guys. The thing about Killian is that he scored. He made like major leaps in terms of scoring efficiency this past year playing with Ohm. He had like almost a 60 percent true shooting percentage. He didn't shoot it particularly well from three. I think he was only a 29 percent shooter from three, I think. But he was a great free throw shooter. So that leads you to think that he probably is shooting projection. He's a very impressive live ball passer, live action passer. Like he can throw darts all around the floor coming off a screen. Uh, he's someone who I think you know could potentially hold the keys to an offense that can perform in the top half of the league in terms of efficiency. Like he's not a super athlete going to the basket, but he still has ways of scoring with his floater, with his pull up from the mid range. Uh, he just has a big body, six foot five. He's not like super strong and cut yet, but. Uh, you know, he has a frame where I think he's going to be able to add muscle and put on weight. So I really love Killian Hayes. I think Killian Hayes is awesome. I saw him the first time when the U.S. played France in a FIBA game. Uh, and Theo Meldon was on that team as well. And France ended up with the silver. And I believe like Cole Anthony and Tyrese Maxey were on the U.S. squad. Uh, and that was the first time I saw him and France got blown out in that game. But I remember thinking, man, Killian Hayes, is he's going to be a good prospect down the line because he was killing that tournament before he ran into the Americans in the gold medal game. Uh, so I really like him. Not a high level athlete. Certainly his dad, I think, is an American. So yeah. I don't think like the adjustment internationally will be a big deal for him. I, I have him as a top three prospect. I would have him third right now. If I was going to say my board, I would go lamello edwards then killian uh then it gets tricky then it might be a kongwu there's a lot of other guys you know in that mix four five six who you could go with but uh, i really believe in killian because i think that he has initiator potential i think he has enough versatility offensively to fit into a team context and i think that the parts of the game where he's good are really important parts of the game <laughs> in today's nba yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm actually happy, you know, not that I have the most sources in the world, but it does it does feel like the people that I've talked to are starting to, NBA circles are starting to catch up to the internet on this one, because I think the internet was pretty early on Killian Hayes, um, at least some people were, and now it's like not crazy anymore to see Killian Hayes as a top five guy in mock drafts, where I think uh, people, a couple people that, I, that I've seen had him like number one overall, which I think is a little high, but I, I appreciate it. I think he's a good prospect and I like him. So, yeah, um, we'll see how that all goes. I'm trying to think if I need to ask you anything else before I let you get out of here. I think we're probably we're probably covered. Um, I know you mentioned it earlier, but you're on the, you're on this furlough thing. Uh, but you should people be people should be subscribing to the uh, newsletter. You have anything else to plug before you get out of here? No, I mean all I'm really doing work wise for now is kind of this Western Illinois thing because people have been into it. Uh, People have been really generous uh, when I you know, dropped my Venmo. People have been donating. We're selling T-shirts from one of my players who just graduated through uh, Home Field Apparel. My star center, Deke Van. John Hollinger was tweeting about my video game center from a video game made 13 years ago, Deke Van. John Hollinger doesn't follow <laughs> me. I don't know how John Hollinger I saw, saw that. I saw Hollinger tweeting about you, and I, I assumed you knew each other. That's, that's not true? No. That's He funny. doesn't follow me. I, he's never interacted with me. Of course, he was in an NBA front office until recently. 
But I'm like, this is really strange. John Hollinger is tweeting about my fictional center from a video game from 2007. It was released in 2007. This is crazy. So anyways, I'm just going to keep doing this series. Hopefully people are into it. I try to make it as entertaining as possible. And the live stream was really fun. The live chat was popping. There was I, It was just information overload between Twitter and the live chat. So subscribe to my newsletter, rickyodonnell.substack.com. It's free. I'm never going to do any like mandatory payment for it. And uh, maybe I'll eventually start writing about uh, you know, the draft or high school basketball or recruiting, the future of the game, the beat I had at SB Nation. Hopefully I'll get my job back uh, on August 1st. So we'll see what happens with that too. But uh, yeah, that's about all I'm doing for now. So subscribe to the Substack if you want to follow along. I'm sure at some point the Bulls will do something stupid enough to make you write about the Bulls. Just just out of, just out of pure fury as a throwback. Well, it's, an, it's a new day, bro. We got Karnaschovas. We got Mark Eversley. So it's restarting. Uh, until until the draft happens, they do something crazy, and then you'll be then then you'll be, then you'll be back where I am. But I understand. But <laughs> Absolutely. I, I I just no. I I actually uh not that I enjoy your pain, but uh, I do always love reading you uh, reading your stuff about the Bulls because uh, it comes from this uh this place that I appreciate. But anyway, thank you for joining me, Ricky. I really appreciate that, man. Uh, everybody should be following you up and down, and uh, I all, I too hope that you'll have your uh, job back very very soon, and we will uh, do this again probably in the future if I can beg you to come back on. Tight. I'm always happy to hop on. Thanks for having me. As for everybody else, please subscribe to the podcast and we'll see everybody next time.